0: Mark Cuban. Going
1: against the norm and, and looking for people who had great ideas is, is really what I look for as opposed to individuals mentoring me.
0: David Stern. Thank
1: you. Those are very kind and generous words. I greatly appreciate them, and thanks for having me on. Jeannie
0: Bus, Thank you for having me. What a nice turnout. It's good to see everybody. Chris Evert.
1: It was very interesting. You asked great questions, so thank you very much, Brian.
2: Damian Luller. That was for Seattle. <laughs> <laughs> Maria Taylor. oh, Thanks, Brian. I appreciate it in your preparation shows, to you.
0: Tim Howard. Well, I appreciate you saying I look forward to catching up with you again soon. Just to name a few. Oh. Welcome to Sports Business Radio. Now, here's Brian Berger.
2: Well, thanks for joining us on year 16 of Sports Business Radio. Happy 2020 to you. I'm joined in studio, as always, by our executive producer, Brian Griggs. Griggs, how's it going? 16 years of gold. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, look, I'm very proud of what we've done, of For you, sure. of our staff, and uh, you know, if we stop doing this show tomorrow, I would reflect proudly on the conversations oh, yeah. that have taken place on this show, and I've gotten smarter by listening to the people that have come on with us, oh, and, yeah. and I hope our audience has too. You know, and I was just looking back
0: at the website of just the history of interviews this last couple of weeks ago, and I was like, man, we, I mean, it's like. There's so many gems on there. Yeah, if you haven't just gone, just last year. Yeah, just was last year. Go, unbelievable. Go back and do some archive searching because there's some fun stuff in there.
2: Well, and we'll start with this. Uh You know, if you follow me on Instagram and Twitter, you know how devastated I was on January first, as were many people, with the passing of NBA Commissioner Emeritus David Stern, who was a friend, a mentor. Uh, I was last on stage with him in May at the Sports PR Summit many interviews on Sports Business Radio, the last of which I would tell you go back to December 8th, 2016, 90 Minutes of Gold with David Stern when I sat down with him in person in New York at the Sports Business Radio Roadshow. If you want to hear in his own words about his life and his career and his major decisions and growing up and uh, playing crazy eights and sexy sixes, as he said, (laughs) and throwing dice and you know, all that kind of stuff. It is a golden interview. I listened to it again after his passing. and I was like, I'm so glad that we had this conversation because whenever I had had him on before and he was commissioner of the NBA, it was, it was 20, 30 minutes. This I felt like was, this is the definitive David Stern interview. If you'd never heard of David Stern before and you listened to this interview from December 8th, 2016, you'll walk away with a very good image of who he was, why he made some of the key decisions he made, whether it was the Chris Paul trade or what happened in Seattle, you really do walk away with a a great sense of who he was. But just a tremendous man. John Wartime, who is the longtime executive editor and senior writer for Sports Illustrated, he's a correspondent for 60 Minutes. He's going to join me on our podcast this week, and uh, we're going to reflect on the life and the legacy of David Stern. But You know, I'm very sad. I'm going to go fly to New York and I'm going to go to his memorial. And, uh, he meant a lot to me personally. He certainly meant a lot to my career. You know, I look at people like Rick Welts and so many others who he impacted directly with their careers. And, you know, the David Stern tree of people he influenced was, was pretty impressive. Grace. Yeah,
0: and you talk about that with John in the interview today about that tree. You know, his branches just reach yeah. out to so many people. And John talks about, too, you know, he was so involved with uh, the NBA, the athletes. Like, he took, he was in, concerned about them. You know, he took pictures with them. He talked to them. He gave them advice. And that's something that I don't think you see in many um, leaders of leagues anymore. It's just he, he, he just reached out to
2: so many different people and touched a lot of, lot of lives. Let me give you some stats, and some of these we'll go over with with John during our interview, but this just shows you, from a sports business standpoint, forget about the amazing relationships he built, like you just said, but when he came on board in 1984, there was a total of 23 franchises, and the value of those franchises was $40 million. When he left in 2014, $19 billion for 30 teams, so... You go from a struggling league that had drug problems, that wasn't on live TV, that wasn't global, that didn't have TV deals, which, by the way, during his tenure, those TV revenues increased 40-fold to over a billion dollars. So 1984... The Celtics-Lakers finals isn't even on live. It's on tape delay. Can you imagine that today? <laughs> Crazy. Can you Im- The NBA finals, not a regular season game. The finals are on tape delay. Right. And they're essentially buying airtime to show their games on tape delay like an infomercial would. <laughs> and now it's billions of dollars. I think the updated number is $7.5 billion, the deal the NBA has with ESPN and TNT. Wow. and once that deal's renegotiated in a few years, and you add streaming to the equation, mm-hmm. so that's one stat that is is really staggering. Um, the other thing is, is when David Stern retired in 2014, the NBA had opened offices in 15 cities in the United States and signed agreements to televise games in more than 200 countries in 40 different languages. The other thing you talk about the international growth. It went from 10 international players in 1984, total of 10, to today, 108 players from 38 countries and territories on NBA rosters. So this was a man who was a visionary. This was a man who could make you feel like when he was talking to you that you were the only person on the planet. He just totally engaged with you, even if he just met you once. When he walked into a room, he was by far the smartest person in the room. Oh, yeah. Even if he didn't come across and didn't want to make everyone else feel bad, he was the smartest person in the room. I love the fact that when he retired from the NBA in 2014, he reinvented himself and he got involved in tech and he interned at some of these tech companies. He reinvented himself. He didn't say, well, I'm just going to go right off into the sunset and, you know, kick back and, and, watch TV or play golf or ping pong, like he went and learned new industries. He was seen as someone. If you got to pick the brain of David Stern, you were tapping into genius.
0: Yeah. And it's like, we mentioned that with John too today is that he, he just had so, he always wanted to learn. Like, he never shut down. His mind just stayed sharp because right. he's always learning the new stuff. I mean, he, he's 77, he's in tech companies, you know? I mean, how many 77 year old guys are involved with stuff that's startups, you know, with 20 year olds starting it? I mean, it's pretty cool how involved he was and he just always kept that mind sharp and, uh, just a fascinating individual.
2: Uh, the total attendance when he took over was around 10 million for a season. When he left in 2014, 21 million. For attendance. So, you know, I could give stats forever and ever about how he grew the league over the 30 years, but we will have John Wartime on from Sports Illustrated in 60 minutes and just a few minutes to discuss the life and the legacy of David Stern. Now I want to dig into the NFL because Griggs, the NFL is back in a big way. We remember, you know, there were some seasons here recently where the TV numbers were down, attendance was down, people were saying, well, You know, this may be the downward fall of the NFL. Well, let me give you some numbers. (laughs) 47 of the top 50 most watched shows on American television since September have been NFL games. Okay. A staggering average of 30 and a half million viewers watched the four wild card games this last weekend, led by Seattle, Philadelphia, which was the most watched TV show since the Super Bowl. Mm. Um so the TV ratings are, are up big. Uh, the Titans-Patriots game was seen by an average of 31.4 million. That was up 7% from last year's wild card playoff in prime time. It was the most watched AFC wild card game airing at night in nine years. So, if you look at the TV numbers, they're good. They're good. And they're, you know, the good regular season, And here's something else that's really interesting, because I think it lends to the numbers getting even bigger and bigger as we go along. The ages of the remaining quarterbacks in the NFL playoffs. Lamar Jackson just turned 23 this week. That's staggering. Mm -hmm. Patrick Mahomes, 24. Deshaun Watson, 24. Jimmy Garoppolo, 28. Ryan Tannehill, 31. Kirk Cousins, 31. Russell Wilson, 31. Aaron Rodgers is the old man river at 36. You have young, exciting, mobile, smart quarterbacks remaining in the playoffs. This is where I feel like the torch is being passed. Brady and Breeze went out round one. Now it's the young guns that are coming in. And you watch these exciting offenses like the Ravens and the Chiefs and The 49ers and you know what Russell Wilson has been able to do this year. I think it is really going to be an exciting rest of the way for the NFL. And you know if you happen to get like a Chiefs-Packers Super Bowl or a Ravens-Niners Super Bowl or something like that, the ratings are going to be off the chart. And by the way, last thing I'll say before I let you chime in, Griggs. Fox is sold out Hmm. of all of its TV spots. How much will a 30-second spot (laughs) on Fox cost you during the Super Bowl this year? An all-time record $5.6 million. And this is heading into a presidential campaign year. So, of course, President Trump and Michael Bloomberg have already reserved their spots, each spot. $10 million for their Super Bowl ads. So you're going to have Super Bowl ads with presidential candidates, and they're already sold out at the tune of $5.6 for 30 seconds. Unbelievable. Fox is very happy right now. Uh, Yeah. (laughs) Well, this is why the networks pay the big dollars for the rights fees, and then they wait for their time to host the Super Bowl, and you hope that you're in a good cycle. And if you happen to be in a presidential year... Yeah, you're going to make ten million dollars per candidate, like they are here with Bloomberg and and Trump.
0: Well, back to the NFL and how it's doing so well. I think you're right. It's it's the young quarterbacks. It's the unpredictableness of the NFL. Like every play, you don't know what's going to happen, and that makes the viewer. You're just you're waiting because what's Mahomes going to do? What crazy throw is he going to do? Where's Russell going to run? You know, and and it's just that I think it's tune. You have to tune in because it's so exciting, right? And these people are scoring points. There's comebacks. There's. I mean, it's just fun to watch every game.
2: Yeah. All the games in wildcard were good. Oh, yeah. Fun. You it's know, great. even though the the Bills-Texans game, you kind of just wanted that thing to end. Yeah. It was still exciting. It still was, yeah. Because it was close. Yep. All right. More stats for you, because that's what we do here on Sports Business Radio. We bring you the stats you can talk about around the oh, yeah. water cooler. <laughs> this is from our friends at SportTrack. The combined 2019 cash earnings of the Final Four NFC quarterbacks. That's Russell Wilson. Aaron Rodgers, Kirk Cousins, Jimmy Garoppolo, $111.2 million between the four of them. The AFC starting quarterbacks, Ryan Tannehill, uh, Jackson, Mahomes, Watson, $10 million. There's a hundred <laughs> million dollar difference. That's great. In the starting quarterbacks in the AFC and the NFC. And it just shows you you can do it different ways, right? You either go and and look, yes, Jackson, Lamar Jackson and Mahomes and Watson are on their first contracts. And Tannehill was off the scrap heap. To be honest with you, he was, you know, acquired via trade from the Miami Dolphins, so he's not making a lot of money. But it shows you you can still win big. Oh yeah. But with those uh with Jackson, Mahomes and Watson, those guys are going to get paid Oh yeah. and they're going to get big money. So in a few years, they'll be at that $111 million level for sure.
0: Yeah. It's just funny. Like that is, it's a hundred millions difference, but like you said. Both teams, both sides are winning. So it's how you build teams. It's, you know, and like you said, they're going to get contracts, uh, extensions and big time money coming up. It's kind of like when Steph Curry was in the league. He was paid nothing. Right. He's winning titles and it's like he's one of the lowest paid, paid guards for what he was doing. And then he gets paid. So it's kind of the same system and eventually they all get their money, but it is funny that difference.
2: So the plus 40 quarterbacks. Drew Brees, Tom Brady, both eliminated in the wild card round. And this is so interesting, Griggs, because Drew Brees hits the open market on March 18th. If the Saints don't extend him by then, they cannot franchise him. So you could have a scenario where both Tom Brady and Drew Brees are on the open market and mm-hmm. Tom Brady's 42 years old. He has never been an unrestricted free agent. In his entire career. He's 42. This is the first time. So is there a team out there that feels like, you know what, we're on the cusp. All we need is a bright quarterback who can run our offense and manage our offense and get us over the hump. You know, we've seen this with Brett Favre. We've seen it with Joe Namath. We've seen it with Joe Montana. And the sad thing is a lot of times these things don't end well, right? (laughs) But I'll tell you this. For Tom Brady... I am absolutely leaving New England if they don't get me some offensive weapons around me. Because you can say what you want about him being 43 and his skills declining, but he had nothing to work with. Yeah. And look, they tried to get some wide receivers. They tried to get some running backs for him. They had Antonio Brown at one time. Obviously, Gronk retired, but he had nothing to work with. And... On the flip side of that, you look and see what Drew Brees had to work with. Alvin Kamara and Michael Thomas, who's probably the best wide receiver in the NFL, he had a good tight end. They couldn't figure it out. And I still think Drew Brees has some football left in him, but you could have these two players who have played most of their career for their respective teams, the Patriots and the Saints, and they could be leaving now. If you're a team like the L.A. Chargers, why would you sign one of these guys? Because you need to put butts in seats. You need to be relevant. You're trying to sell personal seat licenses. You're trying to sell jerseys and merchandise. The instant you sign Brady or Breeze, your team becomes relevant and a media star. So it's a lot more than just, can they win games on the football field? It's also, what can they do for my business and my relevance? And I think both of those guys are going to have suitors come the free agency period for
0: sure yeah and you're right it instantly makes these teams somewhat relevant like if brady goes to la first of all i mean he's never played for another team so there's a story right there right across the nation you know and he's from cali i think originally northern cali yes yeah, so, i mean you got that story i mean it's instantly it's going to be people are going to be interested jerseys are going to be sold so i think you're right i think both wherever those guys end up it's going to be they're going to be relevant just instantly
2: Now, I've got a a quick two-minute rant on something, and I've gotten into things on Twitter, at SB Radio with some people. One of the biggest mistakes that the New England Patriots have made in the last 20 years, they traded Jimmy Garoppolo. And people can say, well, Tom Brady wasn't secure with Jimmy Garoppolo, or they needed a second-round pick, which they got for Jimmy Garoppolo. Here's the lesson, and I want Everyone to listen very closely to this. I don't care if you run a sports team or if you just run a business. If you have someone in your organization who is special, who is talented, who can make your organization championship caliber, you do whatever you need to do to keep them in the organization. Those people are hard to replace. If you look at the San Antonio Spurs, they went from David Robinson to Tim Duncan. If you look at the Dallas Mavericks, they went from Dirk Nowitzki to Luka Doncic, who they went out and got. They gave up two first-round picks, and they identified him as the successor to Dirk, and they went and got him. What if the Green Bay Packers had said, you know what, Brett Favre's uncomfortable with Aaron Rodgers behind him on the bench. We're going to trade Aaron Rodgers so Brett Favre is more comfortable. You don't do that. You keep good people in your organization They should have kept Garoppolo in the organization and paid him a lot of money to make him happy. And if they did, their championship window would now be extended by another 10 years. And people on Twitter have said to me, well, what if you had to sacrifice last year's Super Bowl in order to keep Garoppolo? Fine. If you're going to make me relevant and make me a championship caliber team for another 10 years, that window, I'll trade one Super Bowl for the opportunity at 10 others or to be championship caliber. The fact that they traded Jimmy Garoppolo, especially for a second round pick was a big mistake. I'm not saying he's the second coming, but we've seen what he's done in San Francisco and he would have been a great replacement for Tom Brady. He knew the system. You don't get rid of a guy just because of politics. You figure out how to make it work. You figure out how to pay the person or woman and you keep special people in your organization because I promise you, again, whether you're a sports team or a business organization, if you get rid of someone who's special, you're going to look back and you're going to go, wow, I really blew it. I should have kept that person in my organization, especially
0: with the NFL and the quarterback position, because it's so hard make to make or find, break. It's so hard to find somebody yeah. that can back up, like like you said. and uh, And instantly now the Patriots are going the irrelevant route where they
2: could be more relevant still. Right. All right, the head coaching carousel has been going round and round. Mike McCarthy, former Packers coach, is now the head coach of the Dallas Cowboys. And I love the story that came out, Griggs. Adam Schefter reported this, that on the Saturday night before he was hired, so last Saturday night, Mike McCarthy supposedly had a sleepover at the Jerry Jones (laughs) estate. And you can just picture, like... (laughs) Were they having pizza? Were they right. watching the NFL playoffs? Were they playing ping pong? Like, what was going on? That would have been a fun one to have a camera sure. inside the Jerry Jones compound to figure out, like, what's that conversation look like? And, you know, Mike McCarthy is not someone who strikes me as uh, someone who's going to kowtow, you know, like Jason Garrett did, frankly. And so that's going to be an interesting relationship because I think Mike McCarthy is going to want to have a much greater say sure. in football operations, the roster, and decisions. And he's not just going to go, okay, Jarrah, you make all the decisions and I'll, you know, make it work with whatever decisions you make. Um, I do think Mike McCarthy is a really good coach. I think of all the coaches on Uh, the, you know, the list of people that they could have hired. He's in the upper echelon. You know, you heard the Lincoln Riley's and the Urban Myers and Bill Belichick and, you know, all these names being thrown around. But realistically, McCarthy was available. He, you know, had good success in the playoffs. He actually won a Super Bowl in Cowboy Stadium with the Packers. They beat the Steelers. So that hiring makes sense to me. I'm not as, befuddled by that but the hiring that has really befuddled me is joe judge to the new york giants and i tweeted this out if you watch the morning show on apple tv the joe judge hiring is the equivalent of the morning show plucking bradley jackson from obscurity to hire and put in the big seat judge was probably just as shocked as bradley jackson was on the morning show griggs I've never heard of Joe Judge. If you're going to hire anyone from the Patriots, wouldn't it have been Josh McDaniels, the OC, who's been rumored to be a head coach? I don't get this. And, and, you know, maybe there's something that Dave Gettleman, the GM sees, but I, it feels more like I'm going to hire a coach who I can control, who's going to be indebted to me, who's going to be a puppet. And that's how we're going to run this thing versus hiring someone who actually has some head coaching chops or offensive coordinator or defensive coordinator chops. Joe Judge, what?
0: Yeah, and it's like, last time I checked, New York is kind of a big market. Uh, Yeah, It's not Fargo, North Dakota. I mean, come on. And the Giants have just been an absolute tailspin for a while now, and this just keeps adding to it. I was the same way. I'm like, who is? I had the research. I'm like, who is this guy?
2: Well, and you bring up a good point, because that job is not just about what you do on the field. That job is managing the press conference. And it's doing interviews, and you are in The media capital of North America, New York. Can Joe Judge handle that? And and look, like Bradley Jackson on the morning show, when you get this opportunity and they throw a ton of money at you and they elevate you to the big seat, you're probably like, uh, sure. Yeah, I can (laughs) do that job. Sure. (laughs) You're going to figure out a way to make it work. But I'll bet you if you really got Joe Judge on the litmus test and you said, hey, Joe, Do you think in the next month you're going to be hired as a head coach in the NFL? He would have been like, what? Huh? And by the way, this is the underlying thing to all of it. The New England Patriots' wide receivers this year were terrible. They underachieved, other than maybe Julian Edelman. The guys they drafted underachieved, they could not figure out any kind of help for Tom Brady. And that's the resume that you're bringing to be the head coach of the New York Giants? I just Don't get it. And maybe we'll all be wrong on this, but it doesn't feel like it. Uh, Matt Rule goes from Baylor to the Carolina Panthers. Darren Ravel had a good stat. His uh, first year at Baylor, or one of his years at Baylor, he made $626,000 per year. Griggs, Matt Rule with the Panthers now is going to make $626,000 per month. (laughs) So he's going to become instantly one of the highest paid coaches in the NFL this is a guy who I've never met him, but you hear culture, and he's going to come in and change the culture. He's innovative. Um, people have said he's the closest thing to Pete Carroll coming from the, co- the college ranks to the pro ranks. That's high praise. But uh, you know, I know the owner really wanted him, and he was supposed to interview with the New York Giants, but <laughs> Carolina didn't let him leave the building. That's another lesson. We told you if you have special people yeah. like Jimmy Garoppolo in your organization, you keep them. By any means necessary the other thing is if you're interviewing someone and you really want them do not let them leave and go do other interviews you keep them in the building and you bring them to your house if you're Jerry Jones and have a pizza party and you do not (laughs) let them leave until you have a signed deal with them if you identify your person get them Ron Rivera goes to the Washington Redskins I think that's a great hire Ron Rivera great at the press conference Really solid coach, good culture guy. If anyone has a chance at turning around the Redskins, it's Ron Rivera. And memo to Dan Snyder, the owner, just give Ron Rivera the keys. Let him do his thing. Don't meddle. Just give him the keys and get out of the way. And I really like uh some of the moves they've made to that coaching staff, too. That's going to be good. Now, the one remaining team, Griggs, that hasn't hired a coach, what a shock. It's the Cleveland Browns, <laughs> who... I mean, they were supposedly in on Mike McCarthy, Matt Rule, Ron Rivera, all these names, and now it's kind of like, well, the good news is we have the pick of the litter, right? We're the only job left on the market, so we can talk to Josh McDaniels, we can talk to lots of different people, and there's not the urgency because everyone else is already... If you're playing uh, musical chairs, everyone's found their seat already. (laughs) The bad news is... What a surprise that the Browns are left last here at the dance. And either that's a reflection on people ranking their job last or they just couldn't get their act together and they got rid of their GM, Ken Dorsey. So this is one of those jobs that is wide open. And frankly, it's ripe for a Jim Harbaugh or it's ripe for, you know, like Pete Carroll, when he went from USC to Seattle, He said, if I'm going to go to the NFL again, and he told me this on Sports Business Radio, I need control over the roster. I need control over football operations. I want to bring in my own GM. So that's what the Browns are doing here is they're going to bring in their coach first. Then the coach is going to have a say in who the GM is. I think it's smart, but if you were ever going to get a Jim Harbaugh or someone like that, they're going to want to have final say over staff and roster. So we'll see. Will this be a Josh McDaniels or will this be, you know, someone big like a Jim Harbaugh and Urban Meyer or someone that says, all right, if I'm going to take an NFL job, you got to hand me the keys to everything and, and let me control it. Griggs, the last thing we'll discuss before we get to the John Wartime interview is on Monday, you've got the college football national championship. I'll bet you the Tigers win. Cause yeah. it's the Clemson Tigers versus the LSU Tigers. Nice. Pretty. <laughs> Pretty safe bet. Um, as we sit here now, Clemson's a five and a half point underdog, which LSU has played lights out out of this world. You know they lit up Oklahoma, but Trevor Lawrence has never lost a college football game. He's twenty four now. Uh, Clemson has a twenty nine game winning streak. I think so. Yeah. So I have a, a, you know, $5 bet with my buddy. <laughs> I got to take Clemson and the points. Yeah. Because even if they lose, I think it's like a field goal game. I think it comes down to the end. I don't know how you bet against a team that's won 29 in a row, and the quarterback has never lost a game in college. Yeah. And again, I love Joe Burrows. I love Coach O. Maybe LSU's just playing at a different level, and, and they will cover that spread, and it'll be a blowout. But I tend to think it's going to be a, a closer game. Yeah. And ESPN is going all out, Griggs. So, you know, there's not just like the main telecast. It's the megacast production. So you've got ESPN News. You've got ESPN 2. You've got ESPN And you've got the all cam, the pylon cam, the multiple sky cams. There's going to be cams just on the head coaches for the, like the entire game. Nice. There's commentary on all these different channels. There's basically like 15 different platforms or presentations that will present the college football national championship game. And Griggs, out of all of it, I'm just excited that it's somewhat different than Alabama. Yep. It's a different matchup. Coach O and Joey Burrows, the Heisman Trophy winner, some new flavor to it. Even though Clemson is back in the game, it's a different matchup. If it had been Alabama-Clemson again— Wake me up next season.
0: Yeah, no, and I think it's gonna be a fun game. I think it, you know, something's gotta give. One of them's gonna walk away with a, being a loser, so I'm excited to see it, and uh, it's, again, like we were talking about earlier, with the quarterbacks that are exciting, you got two quarterbacks that are phenomenal. So that is gonna make the game fun to watch right there.
2: Well, and you bring up a good point, cause they're probably, if people are paying attention, the number one pick in the next two NFL drafts. Right? So Trevor Lawrence is too young to come out after this year. He'd probably be the number one pick if he came out. Joe Burrows has elevated himself from like a eighth round pick to maybe the number one pick. Tua did say this week he's coming out. So, and he signed with uh, Lee Steinberg, by the way, who also represents Patrick Mahomes. So Tua could be the number one pick, but Joey Burrows is going to be in that conversation. He's going to be a high pick. Yeah. And Trevor Lawrence is probably the number one pick next year. So, in this game, like how many national championship games have we seen where you can say these are the number one picks in the next two drafts? I can't remember many no, of those games. No. And I'll tell you what, Trevor Lawrence, I didn't realize how big he is. You watch that game against Ohio State, he's six six. Crazy. That dude, first of all, he's faster than you give him credit right. for when he's running for touchdowns. And and then the other thing is is he reminds me of Big Ben, where guys just kind of bounce off of him. He'll, he'll kind of throw people off of him when the rush is coming, instead of like, it's Tom Brady or Drew Brees and they're running for their lives. Yeah. <laughs> this is a big guy with a cannon arm, and guys just fly off of him like Big Ben. That guy, I'll tell you what, if I'm an NFL team, I'm doing okay. whatever tanking or whatever I need to do <laughs> to get that guy as my quarterback, Cause that's the new prototype quarterback. He's six six. He has a cannon arm, and he can run. Maybe that's the Giants' plan: just keep tanking. <laughs> maybe, maybe that's why they hired Joe Judge. They're like, we're going to hire this guy for a year. Yeah. No one's ever heard of him. We can easily blow him out. He's you know he's expendable, and then we'll go get Trevor Lawrence as yeah. our as our quarterback. But they just drafted Daniel Jones, so they're yeah, kind of going all in on him. But like you said earlier, it's really interesting with the NFL to see these spread offenses. If you look at the teams that are left, you know, Kansas City, uh Baltimore, the Texans, yep. the Seahawks, they're all running dynamic offenses with their quarterback being able to either run or throw the ball. And, you know, 10 years ago, people were like, that's a irresponsible offense. The quarterback's going to get hurt. He's going to have a short career. But they've all figured out, knock on wood, how to play these offenses and how to avoid getting hurt. So, uh, quickly, Griggs, give me your prediction for mm. the NFC and AFC championship games and then Super Bowl.
0: Oh, you're catch- catching me off guard here. I uh, I think, I think Baltimore and San Francisco's your Super Bowl. Okay. And, oh, I don't know about the other ones. I think, uh, so AFC championship. AFC championship is going to be,
2: Chiefs, Ravens, because you have the Chiefs, Ravens in the Super yeah. Bowl. Chiefs, See? Ravens,
0: yeah. And then, I mean, I'm a Seahawks honk, so i got to yeah. give Seahawks the, the nod there. But I think uh,
2: San Francisco and Baltimore are the Super Bowl. Okay. I'm going to go Ravens, Chiefs as well in the AFC. And I think that's going to be what a just game. a great— <laughs> And it's going to be in Baltimore, so it could be snowing. I love it. Not that Kansas City would be any warmer. Um, But, again, two quarterbacks of the future for the league, Lamar Jackson and Patrick Mahomes, if that's what it turns out to be. And then in the NFC, I think the Niners get it done against the Vikings this weekend. And I'm going to go Seahawks over Green Bay in Green Bay. So I think we set up a, a third matchup yeah. of Niners, Seahawks, in the NFC. And the first two matchups, I mean, the last one literally came inches away. Yeah. From a different result. Crazy. And the first one was a crazy game. So if that's the NFC championship, not that the Niners Packers wouldn't be good, but, uh, I think it's going to be Niners and, uh, and Seahawks. I am going to go Niners and Chiefs. Okay. So Niners and Chiefs that's is fun too. my Super Bowl. Uh, and, you know, I just think the other thing is Patrick Mahomes was out for part of this year. And I think people have kind of been so intoxicated by Lamar Jackson, and he's been great. But let's not forget, Patrick Mahomes is pretty damn good. And what he did last year was video game-like. And he was the MVP. And now that he's healthy and their team is healthy, I think that Kansas City, a lot of people are sleeping on Kansas City. Mm -hmm. So uh, I'm going to go Kansas City and San Francisco, but we will see again... The Super Bowl is on Fox. They're sold out of their Super Bowl ads to the tune of $5.6 million for a 30-second spot. All right, coming up next, we're going to reflect on the life and legacy of my dear friend David Stern, who I'm going to miss greatly. Uh, I'll be going to his memorial service in New York in the next couple of weeks. And uh, John Wartime from Sports Illustrated in 60 Minutes joins me next to reflect on the life and legacy of the best commissioner of my lifetime and just a gem of a human being, David Stern. You're listening to Sports Business Radio. We'll be right back. When it comes to stadiums and arenas, every sports pro knows wireless wins. And when it comes to the best wireless technology for your venue, look no further than Boingo Wireless. Boingo is the largest operator of indoor wireless networks in the U.S., providing state-of-the-art Wi-Fi and cellular services that power amazing fan experiences. And Boingo makes keeping your stadium connected easy today and in the future. Thinking about 5G? Boingo's expert team helps you carry the ball through a complex technology landscape to deliver wireless solutions that will delight fans and deepen loyalty season after season. Here's another kicker. Boingo is simply the best connected experience for your business. With Boingo, stadiums and arenas enjoy unique operating efficiencies, revenue opportunities, and digital insights into their fan base. That's a win-win. Boingo works with major league sports venues like Soldier Field, Vivint Smart Home Arena, State Farm Arena, and university stadiums like University of Louisville and K-State. Our thanks to Boingo for their continued support of Sports Business Radio. We're excited to showcase how technology is changing the business of sports. If you would like more information on Boingo Wireless, visit boingo.com or email sports at boingo.com. Joining us now on the Blinder Guest Line is John Wartime, a longtime friend of the show, longtime executive editor and senior writer for Sports Illustrated, correspondent for 60 Minutes on CBS, part of the Tennis Channel's coverage and also, like myself, uh, a friend of David Stern. We know that David Stern passed on January 1st. I wanted to have John on to kind of reflect on the life and legacy of David Stern. John, Happy New Year. How are you?
1: Uh, happy New Year to you. All, all good here.
2: How did you first meet David Stern, and what was your relationship with him? Oh,
1: man. Um, I, I guess I met him in, in the 90s. Um, when I was, I guess I met him when I was working for the for the Blazers, like you were, Brian, in, yeah. in the mid '90s. And then, and then when I started covering the NBA for Sports Illustrated, he was. Um, and this has really come out um, in a lot of these recollections and remembrances. He was very accessible. He liked to spar. He was more accessible when the topic was something he wanted to talk about than didn't. But um, you know, you, you talk about their their. Writers and, and members of the media and other sports who may never meet the commissioner of their sport, this was the opposite. Everyone had David Stern's phone number. He'd come into Sports Illustrated. You'd go over to the NBA offices. The NBA offices um, in Midtown Manhattan were two blocks away from Sports Illustrated. So it was very easy to go over there and, hey, why don't you pop over? We could do this in person. He was very accessible. Um, We had a a mutual friend who was a professor of law school who worked um, at Proskauer, the the firm where David worked before going to the NBA in the 70s, so we had a bit of a connection there. And, you know, I I think it's funny, everyone, I'm really struck by how many people have personal stories of David Stern. Um, NBA employees, players, but also members of the media, and the NBA community, and at first... It was a little, you know, when, when he passed on New Year's Day, I sort of thought, well, wait a second, let's let let's celebrate David Stern and not turn this into, uh, and I'm as guilty as anyone, not turn this into uh, um, sort of this per- personal recollections. But then it occurred to me that these kind of personal relationships and these, you, you never forgot your encounters and verbal spars and the time he got mad at me, that was all part of his MO and part of his charm and part of his strategy. So I, I'm really blown away by how many people have these stories and how everyone sort of is reflecting personally. Um, it's been a lot about what David Stern has meant to the NBA and the sports business, but everyone has a personal anecdote. And I, I think that's really telling. You don't often have that when someone of his stature passes away, but he really liked to engage. Um, that's, a, that's a long answer to uh, to a short question.
2: Yeah, we'll talk about kind of specifics of his legacy in the sports business side in a minute. But I agree with you, his... Ability to make you feel like you had known him for 30 or 40 years, even if you just met him, was amazing. Like, he would walk into a room and you hear about the people that just command a room. And, you know, this little aura hangs above their head. He was one of those people. If he walked into a room, he commanded the room, but he also, even if you just met him for the first time, he made you feel comfortable. He was totally in tune with you and what you were saying in the conversation. And you know what? That's why I think a lot of people have personal anecdotes is they felt connected to him, even if they only had one or two conversations with him. I know, you know, in the last year, you spent more and more time with him you mentioned to me that you spent probably more time engaging with him in the last year than you know in all the previous years combined uh post MBA commissioner i found him to be very reflective yeah. uh, i love the fact that he got involved in tech and he kind of learned a new industry he reinvented himself he was still very sharp but you know maybe talk for a couple minutes about Post MBA, David Stern, because I thought he was just as fascinating.
1: Yeah, I, I probably should have brought that up. Um, I'm just finished up a book on the summer of 1984 when you had all these, you know, Jordan and Bird and Magic and Donald Trump. It was not just basketball, but um, that was David Stern was a few months on the job. That was his first few months as commissioner. We can talk about that uh, in the NBA of, in a bit, but he. Um, at first, he didn't quite get what I was doing, and then he really took to it. And he was tremendous as as a source, and he was great to talk to. He obviously doesn't have the the, the pressures that he did as NBA commissioner, so it was come to my office. He'd make a cup of tea. It was like going to visit, uh, you know, it was sort of like right. going to visit a, a family member. And he was very charming and had great stories and great sort of um, recollections, and was really invaluable to this book project remembering these stories and it started out every conversation would start the same Is like, i don't remember you think we will remember that why are you asking me this and then 10 minutes later he's spinning gold with his recollections and i think you're right i mean i think in um in retirement obviously 2014 he hands over uh the reins to adam silver Side- sidebar did you-, did you know adam silver's dad was one of david stern's great mentors ed ed silver um
2: I did not so there know was that. Sort of
1: this element at at uh, at Proskauer, the the law firm I mentioned, actually Proskauer had a a no nepotism policy. So Adam Silver actually had to start at a different firm, but the their, uh, the relationship held. And uh, David Stern and Adam Silver uh, go go way way back. But um David Stern kept an office in Midtown Manhattan, just a few blocks from the NBA office. Not not in the same place. He wanted to sort of give everyone their space, but it's only a few blocks away, right off of Columbus Circle and you're right he was um he was a big tech investor he had a lot of thoughts about sports gambling i mean, i think i'm at liberty to say this he had some thoughts about the the sale of sports illustrated he is was very you mentioned the tennis channel he was became a huge tennis fan had thoughts about tennis channel and tennis coverage and and why doesn't the sport do x y and z and he wasn't the commissioner of the nba flying around the world for you know a, a league that does 10 billion dollars in revenue but um he still was very engaged, very active, very much a figure in sports. He attended your event; I, I, I saw him there. But it was funny as commissioner, we, we all have nice personal stories with David Stern. But I think most people also felt felt the back of his hand at some point. I mean, if, if he didn't like something you'd written or he didn't like a question you'd posed, he wasn't shy about letting you know it. But when I reconnected with him for this book project. Um, there was none of that. It was, it was very endearing and thoughtful and, 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 fun. And, um, it was really, I thought a very graceful transition from being this, this figure and this sort of ass kicking commissioner who had to be tough on issues and, and had to work 18 hour days to, you know, he he didn't go to Boca Raton and play golf. He was still in midtown Manhattan going to work every day and then putting on a suit and taking meetings. But it was definitely sort of throttling down. And um it was really um it was really great getting to know him in that context and, and selfishly still getting access to his smarts um five years after he was, you know, the commissioner.
2: Well, and that's the thing, you know, like you just mentioned, he was at Sports PR Summit in May. Seventy seven years old, but his mind was sharp as a tack. Mm-hmm. Very, very mm-hmm. sharp. I could tell he slowed down a little bit. You know, physically as any 77 year old would, but still so sharp. And I feel like, you know, you and others, me a little bit, were able to get those piles of gold out of his brain before he, he left us. Cause he is such a historian and so much has happened in the NBA since 1984. And he could recall, like, if you remember at Sports PR Summit, I asked him about the night of the malice at the palace. And, you know, he starts off the story talking about, well, it was a Friday night. I was at home with my wife and I was making a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. And she hated when I made peanut butter and jelly sandwiches. Just the detail to his stories and his remembrances were still so, so sharp. So to me, that's one of the tragedies here, too, in addition to just losing him is he was still really sharp. And. You know, if you look at the David Stern tree, like someone needs to do that article, John is give me the David Stern tree because you look at Rick Welts and you look at all of these people who worked at the league office or people who were impacted by him over his career. I would consider myself, you know, not a direct descendant of the David Stern tree, but certainly, you know, my career was helped immeasurably by David Stern. But he impacted so many people working in the industry today.
1: Yeah, I mean, you name name a theme um, in sports today—sort of a macro theme. It's marketing, globalization, and labor, and technology, and media. And he really was a pioneer. I mean, I'll, I'll tell you the other thing too is that everyone, you know, he became commissioner in, in 1984. Um, but the, the truth of the matter is, he really he had a vague title at, at the NBA before that. And he said he kept the title vague on purpose so he could go into different meetings. So if you're the, you know, executive vice president, hey, I belong in this meeting about our media strategy, and I belong in this meeting about marketing, and I belong in this meeting about labor relations, um, he really was running the show before formally he was announced as commissioner. And, you know, I mean, he, you know, if we're going to take the, the measure of, of David Stern, he had some some missteps, he had some triumphs, but... I am struck by this. I went back and looked it up. You, you want to guess what the NBA's gross revenues were in, in 1984 when he took over?
2: Uh, it, it, it
1: depends on your metric. And uh, but the NBA was a mess, and I think people, everyone talks about the you know the, the finals that were on tape delay is sort of the famous story, but it went so much deeper than that. I mean,
2: under 200 million would be my guess.
1: Very good. Yeah, that uh, depends on your metric, but about $111 million gross revenues. And you had teams that were playing at, you know, the, the Pacers, my childhood team. The, the coach, Flick Leonard, had a telethon with his wife to keep the team afloat. The Chicago Bulls, when Michael Jordan was on the Bulls in 1984, it went sold to Jerry Reinsdorf for under $20 million. I mean, the, the Cavaliers played to attendance of 28 percent i mean this was really a struggling league it wasn't there were drug weird. problems there were drug problems there was an element of of you know it was we would call it a dog whistle today but there was a a fear that you couldn't sell a league with so many african-american players i mean this league was really struggling and 30 years later the revenues were north of five billion i mean i i think that um you know obviously that magic and bird and michael jordan and kobe and shaq don't don't hurt and there are a lot of other factors and media and international but david stern i the, the best quote i read about david stern um was from magic johnson uh years ago who said no one is better at seeing around corners mm. and people in the nba said listen in in the 19 early 80s he was going to cable tv summits because he believed that cable tv could be a source of revenue and he was way ahead of the game on on globalization because he realized that basketball travels pretty well and people overseas may not understand the nuances of the nfl but putting a ball in a hoop is something that would translate pretty well and that's a competitive advantage the nba would have he really saw these trends emerging way before anyone else did and i think that that really is um you know one, one of the Top lines its
2: legacy. Well, here's a few stats to back up what you just said. So the total value of the 23 NBA franchises when Stern took over in 84, total value, $40 million. When he left, there were 30 teams and the total value was $19 billion. So you're going from $40 million to $19 billion. I mean, it's just, it's amazing. And then, you know, like you said, the globalization, When he started, there were 10 international players in 1984 on NBA rosters. When he left, there were 92 from 39 different countries on opening night. So, you know, you talk about the globalization. When you get some international players on your roster and you look at the international players that have come into the NBA during his tenure and have now continued, I mean, it really does make for a great expansion globally, but... um. You know, when you look at also, like you said, going to cable TV summits and and things like that, I look at the TV and how he grew that. The NBA is on in 200 different countries around the world. And, you know, again, when he took over, they weren't even on live TV. It was tape delayed. So that to me. Finals finals weren't on live TV. It's crazy. Uh, I'll tell you a funny
1: story though. Um, he when he was working, I, I think he was still at Proskauer. But before he became commissioner, he negotiated the ABA merger, and the St. Louis Spirits did not want to. Uh, as they wouldn't, they weren't part of the merger. But instead, they got one seventh of the broadcast revenues of the four teams that did merge. The whatever it was, the Pacers, Nets, Spurs, Nuggets, and uh, I'm forgetting one: Pacers, Nets, Spurs, Nuggets. I guess that's four. Um, but anyway, the St. Louis Spirits got one seventh of the TV revenues from those teams in perpetuity. Um, that ended up being one of the great or worst sports deals in history. Great um, for the imagine, owners. Great for the I mean, these owners who had this team that was on the verge of bankruptcy. The St. Louis Spirits were making you know tens of millions of dollars. So David Stern crafted this deal that. Um, enrich the St. Louis spirits in perpetuity. But it was also because of David Stern and the escalating value of all these TV deals that, that made this um, so valuable. I mean, I, you know, I, I think that um, I, one thing that was really interesting to me, you mentioned how valuable these franchises got. I mean, remember, it was after Sterling that the Clippers sold for $2 billion. Right. So that $19 billion is probably conservative. But one thing that's interesting to me is a, a while ago at Sports Illustrated, we looked into his Charitable giving. And there were a lot of um, sort of left leaning politicians and and Democratic candidates. He was openly progressive, and and certainly after he was commissioner, he sort of made no secret of his political leanings. Yet he represented these billionaires and these kings of capitalism, and he was the side of, of management over labor, and he was the side of capital over labor probably at odds with his personal politics. I mean, you know, he, he was essentially working for the James Dolans and George Shins and Donald Sterling's. I'm not sure that is consistent with his personal politics, but to me, it was really interesting. And he and I talked about this a little bit um, re- recently when, when, you know, in, in 2019, but, you know, he, he saw his job as not so much as working for the owners the way Goodell clearly does, but working for the NBA and being a steward for basketball and doing what was best for basketball. You know, the, the salary cap, for instance, that is not necessarily progressive. You're, you're restricting the wages of your workers and you're, you're saving rich guys from themselves. But everything he did, even if it was inconsistent with his personal politics, everything he did was in service of the NBA and, and
0: the sport of basketball. You're listening to Sports Business Radio. We'll be right back after this.
2: I can't tell you how many times over the years on Sports Business Radio that a PR person is asked to listen in on my interviews with their CEO, GM, coach, or athlete. They also want to call us in our studio so that we don't have the phone number of the high-profile person who is calling us for our interview. Blinder has developed a technology that solves these issues that have existed for years Use Blinder's unique technology to connect your athlete, coach, or executive's personal phone for any interview without sharing their private information. Remotely control the phone interviews, set start and finish times, monitor online or with the Blinder mobile app, and listen to a recording of the call at any time for complete peace of mind. With Blinder, you're finally in control. The system works globally from any phone line. Scheduling a call takes seconds. Customizable push notifications ensure a connection and no one needs to download anything to make or receive a call. PR people everywhere should be using this helpful technology. Blinder is now the technology we use for the official guest line for Sports Business Radio. Learn how to start your free trial by visiting blinderhq.com backslash sbradio. Now we're talking. Now back to Sports Business Radio with Brian Berger. You know, you can point at specific times where whether he supported a cause or he championed an underdog. I mean, to me, you know, one of the things that stands out about his tenure in his life the most is when Magic Johnson disclosed that he had HIV on November 7th, 1991, you know, everyone thought, well, that's the end of Magic Johnson and... You know, no one wanted to talk about AIDS at that time, but he used that as an opportunity. I'm going to let Magic Johnson play in the NBA All-Star Game after he was the leading vote getter. He showed, like, it's okay to have a conversation about AIDS. And, you know, I've always said, and many others have said this, too, but sports is a door opener for conversations about life. And that was one of those instances where he could have easily said, like, Magic, you're done. We're not endangering the health of our players or whatever, but he saw it as an opportunity to start a conversation and to champion an underdog, and I, I really, that stands out to me.
1: Seeing around corners. But I'll tell you something about that story, too, is that that was not a gut sort of emotional decision so much as he, as I understand the story, he really consulted you know, the, the NIH, and he really had science on his side. And he didn't do this because he liked Magic Johnson or was making an emotional decision. This was done with facts and science and reason. And he educated himself and got the medical health professionals to explain to him the the, the, the risks or the lack of risks. Um, Again, seeing seeing around corners. I mean, he saw before uh, he was ahead of the rest of society and his history validated that.
2: The other thing that stands out to me, too, and I've had this debate with so many people, but at the time he was commissioner, the NBA needed a heavier hand than they need now. And obviously, Adam is very different than David, but David could be really strong when he needed to, whether it was at the Tim Donaghy press conference or ruling on the malice at the palace or whatever it was. You know, he would joke with me, you know what? There's a voting committee of one and it's me. (laughs) And, and, you know, some people would call that a dictatorship. But that's what the NBA needed in some of these cases, and he was not afraid to make the tough decisions, and he was also okay with taking the heat for making those decisions.
1: I'm, I'm trying to figure out a way to say this nicely. But the the nature of the – I mean, I think you're absolutely right, and I think you're also right. I mean, he was very open about, you know, the dictatorship uh, is, is better than democracy in some cases. Right. Things, but I also <laughs> – um, I'm trying to think of a nice way to say this. The, the caliber of NBA owner um, was not what it is today.
2: Ted Stapian.
1: And, yeah, I mean, sometimes, the, I mean, again, some of this was just a function of the, the franchise price tags. I mean, the, the local car dealer who wanted to, you know, throw, throw a few bucks around and then take his kids to a game could buy a sports team. Um, in some ways, that's great. In some ways, that sort of in, inhibits stability and the caliber of, of ownership, Um So he was not, uh, these were not sort of tech titans and hedge fund titans and and the caliber of owner you have today. Um, They needed someone like David Stern. And yeah, I mean, the the league, I I think it's really hard. Again, I only know this because I've been sort of in this 1984 book world, but I, I think it's hard to exaggerate the state of the league when David Stern found it. And it wasn't just that there were fewer teams and less money on the table. There were teams that were bleeding money and being run like the mom-and-pop diner. And apart from the dictatorship, they also needed his level of professionalism and and organizational skills. And um, I I, I heard Jack McCallum recently talk about this, um, and I'm blanking on where I heard this, but you go to the NBA offices and you could shout from one end of the hall to the other. I mean, this was really a small organization, and apart from growing it, he also added layers upon layers of, of professionalism.
2: Yeah, and I just think, you know, again, he needed to protect some of these owners from themselves. If you look at Ted Stepien, you know, there is the Stepien rule that still exists today that you can't trade first round picks in like three or four years in a row because this guy would trade his first round picks every year, you know, and his team would stink. So he put some things in place to protect the owners from themselves.
1: There's a, uh, a a former Clippers owner who probably exemplifies uh, this this same idea to, to an even um more sinister effect. Um but yeah, exactly. I mean, um it's it's you sort of can can go through the list and, and play this game. I mean there's no there there was a reason the Chris Paul trade people often forget the, the NBA basically took over the team from George Shinn at one point. Um so yeah, I think on on a number of levels the NBA in the eighties especially needed this centralizing force and and I think you're right I mean I think today's NBA is sort of abstractly immeasurably different from the NBA that that David Stern inherited um, in in 1984
2: so I'm so happy I got to say this to his face and I truly believe it but he's the best sports commissioner of my lifetime I'm 51 years old and you know as long as I've been alive there's been no one better than him. Where do you rank Stern amongst all commissioners in in your lifetime?
1: Oh man, um, you know I I think some of this like his, history will will bear this out. Um, certainly from a from a power perspective, I, I would put him near the top. I mean his his successor has had an awfully nice run. Um, we, we are five years in, and I can't really think of sort of chi- China notwithstanding. I mean it's. If this went from a honeymoon period for Adam Silver to, like, man, this, this guy has literally not made one false move. But in terms of sheer growth, I don't think we'll ever see anything like what David Stern did. And I also think there was there was a level of respect. I mean, pe- people do not talk about um, Roger Goodell with the same set of adjectives and the same reference points that they used to talk about David Stern. The NFL is bigger, and uh, the, the NFL has richer television and richer ratings and by a lot of metrics and the franchise valuations are higher overall. But I, I don't think that anyone would say Roger Goodell is a more, you know, cho- choose your adjective. Um, I, I don't think anyone would say Roger Goodell is a superior sports commissioner to David Stern. Um, again, you you just look at any, whether it's labor relations, whether it's, I mean, I think internationalization, the globalization of the NBA is a huge Storyline and a huge reason for their continued success and growth. I think there was a common sense approach to the NBA. There were some occasional missteps, and I mentioned the Chris Paul trade. I mean, anyone in you where you are in the Pacific Northwest, um, you know, bring up that the Sonics moved to Oklahoma. I mean, I think that it was not a flawless reign by any stretch, but thirty years. Where was this product when David Stern inherited it, and where was it when he? passed it over to, uh, to Adam Silver, I think it would be hard to contend there was, there was a more effective sports commissioner.
2: Well, and when he passed on January 1st, I was struck by the number of what I would call icons from the NBA, Michael Jordan, Charles Barkley, Mark Cuban, I mean, just some really important people basically saying, if it wasn't for David Stern, I wouldn't be in the position I'm in today. And, you know, that, that's pretty impressive.
1: Yeah, and I also think maybe it's just something as simple as there are fewer players on the roster. Maybe it's something just there's a certain joy of basketball. But there was a connection with not just the owners who, you know, ostensibly he answered to, even though I think you could challenge that, um, but the whole NBA community. I mean, he knew the players. I'm not sure that does Roger, I mean, Tom Brady is obviously a bad example, but does Roger Goodell really have a personal relationship with many NFL players? Um, Same thing to some extent in baseball, you really felt like there was this kinship in the NBA and that the players respected David Stern overall, and they recognized the I meal. You know, Michael Jordan came into the NBA in 1984 just like David Stern did. He mirrored this growth curve. I mean, he saw how much this league was changing and how much more relevant it was and how the revenues were going up. I think there was a real appreciation. There was a real sort of NBA kinship, a real... Since of family, real interpersonal relationships. I mean, how you could Google image David Stern, Larry Bird, Magic Johnson, and there are hundreds and hundreds of pictures of them posed together. I don't think you see that often hmm. with commissioners and athletes. So I, th- I think there was also, for all the growth and all the talking about a sports business leader, there also was a human being with human relations there. And I think that um, is something else that will be part of his legacy. He really knew his players, and there was really – a kinship in a sense of, you know, look, you're, you're labor, I'm management, we can figure out how to divide this pie, but at the end of the day, we're all part of the same NBA family.
2: Well, and we'll end on this. I know during my conversations with him, one of the questions I asked him, I think I had him on Sports Business Radio like eight or nine times, he said, your uh, mom and dad own Stern's Deli in Chelsea. Like, if you weren't commissioner of the NBA, what would you have done? And he said, well, I probably would have been taking over the family business and and running Stearns And Not that that wouldn't have been great, but imagine if that was his path and he didn't go on to become NBA commissioner, what a a different world it would be.
1: I mean, the other thing he would have done is he would have stayed in this very respectable New York law firm. He would have remained, uh, he would have been a partner at Proskauer, and he would have had a perfectly nice life is probably a very good lawyer or litigator. Um, he took a real risk going to the NBA. I mean, he went to Columbia Law School. He was, you know, with Law Review and was known as the king of the all-nighter. He could have had a very nice legal career, maybe a political career. The partners in his law firm, uh, I believe including Adam Silver's father, said, hey, you're crazy. Why are you going to this crackpot NBA, this, like, league teetering on the edge of, uh, of, of demise, Why would you leave this cushy firm life that you have ahead of you? You know, being a partner in a law firm in the middle of Manhattan is the equivalent of having tenure. Why would you give that up to go over to this crazy mom-and-pop sports league? So he took a real risk by, I mean, he was basically sort of outside counsel for the NBA, and then they realized how bright he was, and said, why don't you come in here? And he took a real professional risk um, in his late 20s or early 30s going to work for the NBA. Um, Obviously, that risk... Off.
2: Yeah. Well, we're both going to miss him a lot. Uh, before I let you go, tell me more about this book. Can you talk about it?
1: Um, yeah, sure. I mean, it probably won't come out for a year, given the cycles of book publishing. But this book is about the summer of 1984, and how, in this very short window, you know, ninety days, whatever it is, between uh, Memorial Day and Labor Day, you had everything from Michael Jordan getting drafted and, and getting courted by Nike to Bird and Magic playing in the finals for the first time to, you know, ESPN was, uh, was was sold, but to ABC, and the Karate Kid, you had basically an Olympics in L.A. that was profitable, uh, Donald Trump bought into the USFL, you, you had in this very, very short window, you had uh, a lot going on that would change the the history of sports, so it was sort of this... Um, this period uh, that didn't seem like a big deal at the time, but when they tell the history of sports, this 90-day window had an unbelievable amount of uh, significant events.
2: I cannot wait to read it, and definitely will have you back on uh, when the book comes out to discuss it in greater length. John Wartime, the longtime executive editor and senior writer for Sports Illustrated, correspondent for 60 Minutes on CBS, part of the Tennis Channel. By the way, you're killing it on 60 Minutes. I'm really enjoying watching your your work on 60 minutes okay
1: we have a fun fun piece this sunday
2: all right we'll we'll check it out thank you very much and happy new year you as well thanks always a pleasure you're listening to sports business radio we'll be right back one word you wouldn't typically associate with a dress shirt is comfort however the folks over at mizzen in maine are changing this their shirts are incredibly comfortable Mizzen in Maine makes dress shirts for men that fixes everything that's ever been wrong with shirts for so long. Their shirts breathe, stretch, and wick away moisture. It's like athletic wear disguised as a dress shirt, making them great for travel. They've taken the hassle out of looking great through wrinkle resistance and the ability to wash your shirts at home. No more last-minute ironing. No more after-work trips to the dry cleaner. It's a shirt that's worked for thousands of customers, including hundreds of professional athletes like J.J. Watt and Phil Mickelson. Head over to com and use promo code SBR to get $10 off your dress shirt. That's com code SBR. I can tell you one thing. I'll be wearing Mizzen and Main dress shirts at all future Sports Business Radio road shows and Sports PR Summit events. I can't wait. Well, that's it for this edition of Sports Business Radio. Thanks for tuning in. Thanks to our show staff, Brian Griggs and Josh Blank. Thanks to our friends at Boingo Wireless for powering our Sports Business Radio roadshow. Follow them online at boingo.com or on Twitter at Boingo. For Brian Griggs, I'm Brian Berger. Have a great week, and we'll talk to you soon right here on Sports Business Radio. This and every SBR podcast is
0: available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and your favorite listening app. Follow Sports Business Radio on Facebook, Twitter at Radio, Instagram at Sports Business Radio, and online at sportsbusinessradio.com.